Welcome to the Campbell Conversations. I'm Grant Reher. My guest today leads Consumer Reports, the premier nonprofit dedicated to objective product evaluation and product safety and fairness for consumers. Marta Talato is president and CEO of CR, and her prior leadership experience includes vice president of the Ford Foundation. She's here with me today because she has a new book out titled Buyer Aware, Harnessing Our Consumer Power for a Safe, Fair, and Transparent Workplace. Marta, welcome back to the program and congratulations on this book. Thank you, Grant. Uh, It's a pleasure to be back. Well, we we love having you and uh, the book looks great. Uh, Let me just start with a real basic question. How did you get the idea to write this book now? You know, last time I was on the show, we talked a little bit about that. And mm-hmm. I, I said, I, I was thinking about that. And um, I, I guess the one, two things really, um, I think it's a watershed moment and I'll talk a little bit more about that. Why now, why it's so urgent. Um, I think Consumer Reports has this incredible legacy of sort of um, bearing down in these pivotal moments in our marketplace where there is a lot of change and where consumers and the balance of power uh, has shifted away from consumers. I think we're at that moment again. Uh, mm. And then there were personal reasons um, that you know I, I, I'm happy to talk about as well. Well, that, that is exactly what I wanted to ask you about next is because when I was reading through your book, there's a lot of uh, stories about yourself and about your family in here, and they're very compelling. But I did wonder why... What was your decision making in choosing to include those in a book of this nature? I, I wanted, I, I think I bring a, um, a unique life experience. Uh, I don't think it's that unique in that, you know, uh, we have such a diverse population and so many of us have, uh, so I'll, I'll just share that, you know, I came to the U.S. when I was two years old from Havana, Cuba after uh, a revolution and after the disappointment of my parents seeing what they hoped was going to be some real change, move into a more autocratic state with a lot of heavy surveillance, not a lot of uh, freedom of the press. And, and so it creates in you this, this, this real reverence for the idea, this notion of democracy and what it holds out to you. And then you get here and as an immigrant, you are navigating a lot because you just by virtue of being this, this, uh, impressionable mind that picks up languages at lightning speed uh, when you're that young, you become almost a translator. Uh, You're making decisions that are way beyond your age about choices, about questions to ask doctors. And and you feel very alone in those decisions. And and so um, I, uh, it it was something that that was sort of shook me a bit, but also inspired a notion that here we are, decades later, and we live in uh, a market surveillance uh, environment where we're being tracked and surveilled. We have, we have uh, um, devices in our home that are recording what we say and do. Um, we haven't necessarily agreed to this marketing surveillance economy that's on the internet, but it's the one we have. Does it really need to be that way? And, and what, is its, what is its impact on our democracy? Yeah, and I yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. I wanted to ask you a follow-up question about your family stories. One of the things that I found really interesting about it was the way that you connected your family's immigration story in the United States to consumer issues and then connect that 
to democracy. So it was this really neat combination of things. I don't know if you would speak a little bit more about your experience as an immigrant to these consumer issues. It, it, yes. It's really neat. I'm glad those connections came through. Um, they were very organic for me. It was sort of something you realize, oh, that maybe there's a story here. This, 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 these connections uh, carry some weight. And, and, and so one of them is really this notion of uh, a democracy being something you have to engage in. Right. That 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 after you leave a country because, uh, you know, what you thought was an institution that was hard and fast begins to dissipate, you realize that uh, you have a role to play. It's not just showing up at the at the polling booth every day, every, every year or for however many times you have to be engaged in that. It's a living thing. And so it came away with a tremendous commitment about what that means. And then on the other side is uh, as you begin to see some of the cracks in economic opportunity, right? One of the things that I, I took away is this, uh, I have this firm belief that our democratic freedoms and economic equity um, can coincide, right? Mm. That that are um, so. So in any case, uh, you 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 start to see cracks in you know the housing market, or you're actually uh, shopping for a higher education loan. And is it transparent? Is is it fair? Um, what are the terms? Is there some kind of embedded discrimination in some of those? Uh, tools that you have to use to reach your aspirations in life, right? Because all of us go to the marketplace to follow a path to either get that home loan, to get that college education, healthcare. Um, and what is it about the way that marketplace is wired that's creating real opportunity for everyone? And and to me, that was a constant, right? You're you're mm. always looking for that. Um, economic opportunity. And, and so uh, one of the things that I, I always lean on is this wonderful FDR quote that I use in the book. And and, um, and uh, it, it, I think it's really relevant, relevant today is, you know, uh, democratic freedoms are no half and half affair. Uh, if you guarantee equal opportunity at the polling booth, you have to secure equal opportunity in the marketplace. Mm. And, and that has really been my mantra. Um, and I, I just, that has been so woven into the fabric of my life that I, I have this allegiance to something I deeply believe in as a way of governing. But I also know that its vulnerability lies in, in the fairness and justice that one meets in the marketplace. I'm Grant Reher. You're listening to the Campbell Conversations on WRVO. And my guest is Marta Tolado, president of Consumer Reports, and we're discussing her new book titled Buyer Aware. You know, what you said just a, a few minutes ago about how we're being constantly surveilled by these large internet companies and the relationship to democracy and what you were just saying there. When I was reading the book, that got me thinking about the social media platforms and how they use their algorithms to drive people to more extreme sources of communication. Because I guess, you know, the thinking is that gets them going and they stay on the site, they, you know, they'll, they'll look at the ads and so on. That combined in my mind with the dangers that we're living in right now with political polarization and the dangers that political polarization is posing to the workings of our political system. I was just wondering if you could comment on that a little bit, because I know you're a political scientist by training, so I'm sure you'd think about it. Uh, I, I think we're... 
I think we're at a turning point. Uh, there, there's been an awful lot written about the the in, uh, the incentives of a social media platform that is really about making sure that you get those clicks and you get those likes and that what they know by by intentional testing is that outrage does it. And the more outrageous thing you post, the more people engage, the more they like. It's not reason dialogue. It's not give and take. Um, it is balkanizing these sort of extremes. And there's no accountability for that. And we've seen what happens. Um, we've seen that uh, misinformation, uh, who's really moderating those platforms. There's not enough moderation. Uh, there doesn't seem to be, we know self-policing doesn't work. The punishments, there's no accountability. We had um, Meta, formerly Facebook, find $500 million in Europe for, for failing to put a, a, um, a privacy uh, control on their, uh, for children. They, they were fined $500 million, but, but their market capitalization is 377 billion. So that's not accountability. That that's the cost of doing business for them. Mm. So where where's the accountability? We've seen a lack of we, we've seen growing lack of trust in our government and in the marketplace. How do you get that trust back? You get it back by having more transparency and accountability. Mm. And one of the things I found interesting in your book uh, was your description of of how there's been a a sea change in the way that product misinformation is disseminated. I mean, product misinformation is not new. There have been snake oil salesmen since the beginning of time, but you, you write about how there's been a sea change in the way this is done. Tell us a little bit about, about what's been going on there. I want to make sure I'm following your question. Is, is this about the algorithmic bias inherent in, in um some of the ways in which these platforms serve up choices to us. Um, yes, and 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 in what I was thinking in particular was you you talk about, for example, if 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 they want to make me think a product is good, they will manufacture the the consumer reviews of this, you know, oh. and 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 that that sort of I don't know for lack of a better word, fake positive. Uh, evaluations of their products. Yeah, yeah. Well, well. Look, let's let's be real. The this uh, the internet is is this giant advertising platform, and uh, you have you have very limited ways in uh, Google. And what we know about Google is that it is absolutely uh, powered by its advertising revenue. And then you get a big platform like Amazon and what has spurred the growth is this notion of an influencer, celebrity influencers that um, sort of give a blessing to a product, get on YouTube, do a series. They're getting paid for that. That's not necessarily transparent. And so um, I think you have to be especially cautious. You start to also see that um, we've done a lot of research on this, how um, positive ratings on Amazon get hijacked, mm, right? right? And that that's, you know, there are all kinds of workarounds. And so, and then you get native advertising when you're at an actual news site and you see, you scroll down and you see a whole host of bizarre stories that say in very tiny letters sponsored 
um, which that's just sort of a rabbit hole that you're going to go into and get tracked and, and fed up a lot more advertising. But it's served up on a news site. And so it's not really transparent. Is that news and commentary or is it an advertising? Once you click onto it, then you're right down that rabbit hole. Mm, um, mm. Yeah. And, and you've got in your book there very practical things we as consumers can do about this problem. So I think it's important for our listeners to hear some of the things we should be doing. Well, I think that's right. And, and I, I wrote this book um, to really serve as a playbook a playbook for consumer power. This, the issues we're talking about, um, Grant, are overwhelming. You know, we've been talking about democracy, we talk about lack of trust, fake reviews. Um, how, do you, how do you as an everyday consumer uh, try to go in there and make sense of all this and make choices? So I, I, at every step of the way, I give you some very practical advice about how to do it. Um, one great example is we've been hearing a lot about uh, data privacy and folks getting hacked, or how do you stop the uh, constant advertising tracking and, and, and also preserve your personal information and keep it private and your health information. So we've created a whole set of tools. We've got something called the Security Planner. It's on the site. It doesn't cost anything. Um, I think everybody should just do the step-by-step -step process to kind of start to shut those doors down. Um, but then the other thing is, in addition to the to the step by step things each of us collectively can do, uh, the book is really also a clarion call for a movement that begins to make change on a larger scale. Mm. We've been fed this model of uh, using uh, turning us into commodities and selling our data for profit on these platforms. It doesn't have to be that way. We can actually create. Uh, an internet where uh, it is safe by design, it is private by design. The burden is not on us uh, to make the right choices all the time. So since when is our privacy turned into a setting on your device as opposed to a right that should travel with you wherever you go? So for that to happen, I think we, is, uh, we, we need to demand that um, mm. as a collective. Mm. You're listening to the Campbell Conversations on WRVO Public Media. I'm Grant Reher, and I'm talking with Marta Talato. She's the president and CEO of Consumer Reports, and we're discussing her new book titled Buyer Aware, Harnessing Our Consumer Power for a Safe, Fair, and Transparent Workplace. I want to come back a little bit later in our conversation in the second half to uh, something you mentioned before when I was asking you about product misinformation about some of the biases that are built into some of the uh, uh, data gathering mechanisms that we all have to go through as consumers or if we want a loan. But I wanted to ask you this other question about financial fairness first, and that is that you talk in your book a lot about student loans for higher education. You talk about your own experience there, and you lay out the changing patterns in those student loans in recent decades. President Biden, as we know, has just forgiven a lot of student loans, and the measure was controversial, uh, even among some Democrats. There have been many Democratic economists, for example, who've criticized the move, and it's introduced questions about fairness to others who have made, like you did, difficult decisions in, in paying off those loans. So, so what's your view on, on the forgiveness of these loans? 
Well, this is such an important area because we were talking earlier about uh, access to opportunity. And for me personally, uh, higher education was my bridge. I would not be sitting here talking to you and running uh, you know, consumer reports if it hadn't been for that access to that opportunity. So this is a critical issue. And we know about the runaway debt and we know that it impacts some communities more than others. And it impacts uh, some of the for-profit colleges that uh, have really been scams and that have taken advantage of students. Uh, there was no doubt in my mind that whatever President Biden did around this issue, it was going to be controversial, that it was not going to be all inclusive, that they were, their people were going to be perceived as winners and losers. What I think is important about it is it finally put it on the table and mm. moved one of the pieces on that board to have a conversation, a national conversation. Do I think everyone's going to agree? No, but do we need to have this conversation? Absolutely. I think it's an important step. I don't think it solves the problem of the runaway cost. That to mm -hmm. me, the root cause, we, we need to wrestle with that. And what is driving that? If you talk to a lot of college presidents, they really struggle with some of the, um, the ratings out there and how that's driving you know, sort of perverse incentives about what you uh, put cost in and not. And rather than some of the information that students are hungry for, like financial aid and what percentage of, of, of us graduate that are able to do that. And so I, I, think, I think it's the conversation we have to have. Am, am I looking for consensus to, am I disappointed that there isn't? No, not at all. I, I, think, mm. I think this is important for us to do. And we, um, we need to solve it. And we also need to look at those root problems. I want to come back to the, the biases that you were referring to uh, earlier in the program. And you write at length in the book about how, in particular, credit rating systems have uh, race bias to them. I, I wanted to see if you would explain that a little bit and what its impacts are. Well, I want to, I want to take a step back and, and talk about... Um, algorithms, right? Okay. Algorithms, it's nothing new, right? The algorithms are decision mechanism where you take a whole lot of data and um, it's a human tool. You use this data to arrive at decisions to predict risk and cost. Um, and, but what's the danger there? They have become ubiquitous in calculations about the healthcare you receive, calculations in the price you pay for your auto insurance, um, just every decision that you can possibly think of um, online and otherwise. Um, so this predictive mechanism, it's only as good as the data that, that gets poured into it, right? And so what we discovered was, um, you know, people often think about their car insurance as, well, you know, if I have that really solid driving record, uh, my car insurance rate is going to be lower. Well, what we discovered was that the algorithm that, that calculates that looks at non-driving factors, which mm. is which is not, not, not lawful, and looks at factors like where you live, what is your zip code, and what that's doing is creating a racial bias. And so you see that adjacent neighborhoods are paying different rates. You see that also in healthcare. You see it in, uh, there's an example in the book about kidney transplants and the mechanism and the calculations used to determine how far are you away from needing that. There's an inherent race bias in that as well, not based on science, um, it based on the faulty data that go into it. Nothing new, we as women have often seen a lot of the medical data does not factor in 
women's health outcomes, but more sort of white male outcomes. So, so we're seeing if, 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 if we're not transparent about those algorithms, how do we correct for more fairness in those? How do we, how do we try to get, uh, we have to improve the data, but we also need more human oversight into this machine learning that we're becoming more and more dependent on. So I, I think that's something for us to do, but, but there's a movement and it's called responsible AI. And I think there's a lot of promise and there's a lot of awareness that we didn't have three years ago that we're looking at now. Hmm. If you've just joined us, you're listening to the Campbell Conversations. I'm Grant Reher. And my guest is Marta Tolado, president of Consumer Reports. There's a lengthy chapter in your book on consumer product safety specifically. And I think many people would view that as the core of what your organization has been about historically. So how has the landscape of of product safety and product safety regulation changed in recent years? Well, uh, we've done, for after 86 years of working on the front lines of, of safety in the marketplace, we've had tremendous success in codifying and introducing laws that um, you know, secure your safety as far back as making sure there's a seatbelt in every car, which people <laughs> believe that sort of just happened. It didn't. We had to fight for that. We also had to fight for the backup camera, which, by the way, we only got about five years ago. To in every I love car. my backup camera. I love my backup camera. Yes. And and so do the children in your neighborhood. That is very <laughs> important to have. Um, so, so fast forward. Uh, and what we have now is we have uh, on a landscape of digital tools and assets that um, are moving at such breakneck speed and, and, and their evolution is, is so rapid that the protections and the safety mechanisms and rules that we created in the analog world aren't keeping up with that, right? Hmm. So, so by no means have we conquered every product uh, in the analog world that's safe. And there's some harrowing stories about uh, children's products and infant sleepers that took way too long for the Consumer Product Safety Commission to pull off the market. But now fast forward and you've got a whole set of digital harms and consumer harms that we're confronted with. And we don't have the accountability, we don't have the laws in place to secure that safety, to secure your privacy. And you know, to go back to the car example, uh, okay, so we have seatbelts in every car, but we now have enough data on the new technologies that are saving lives, forward collision warning, um, lane changing, pedestrian spotting. But those are still luxury items in every car. Mm. So they're, they're, it's not mandatory. And so what we've had to do is try to create incentives because in an environment where you're seeing not as much action legislatively as you like or, or bipartisanship on something, it seems, why would you make life-saving technology a luxury item and not standard? So we're still fighting the fight, but it's a new frontier in terms of how we think about safety in a digital landscape. So what are the things that, again, going back to individual consumers, if they want to, try to keep themselves safer, they should be doing. Is there one thing from the playbook that you provide there that you'd pull out? I mean, other than subscribing to Consumer Reports and reading about these things. Well, we have a lot of tools. We have, um, we've got a tool, as I mentioned, uh, called the Security Planner to ensure your privacy online mm -hmm. um, and sort of shut down trackers and um, third-party sale of your data. 
But we also have a tool for your credit score, right? What we know is that um, your access to financing and to the ability to purchase um, home or loans or mortgages also contingent on uh, your credit score. What we learned that there are just a lot of errors in your credit score and you get these credit score apps that are really just a way to soak, uh, soak up more of your data and, mm. and they charge you. You actually have access to your credit score um, and you need to go in there to make sure you check it, to make sure you correct those errors. So we walk you through a way to do that. Uh, again, mm. that is uh, something that's open to everyone uh, for sure. But, but I think also awareness around recalls on secondary market. And right now we've just come out of a hurricane season. Watch out for those cars that have been flooded. How do you check whether they're a car on the secondary market uh, has really wow. been uh, doctored up and is now being sold and has, you know, come from a, a flood zone. So mm. there, there are many, many ways that you can protect yourself. Um, but once again, those are the day-to-day -day issues, I think, um, we try to give you the, the the tools you need. Got about a minute and a half left. And I want to ask you this last question. This is a, a, a more political question for you. Saved it for the end. But um, some large nonprofit advocacy groups that have traditionally been seen as nonpartisan are starting to become seen more as partisan, probably a result of the political polarization that we talked about earlier, where everything is seen through this lens. But I think of AARP, for example, as a good example of this. And I do think it's fair to say that they now tend to advocate what are Democratic Party positions and policy on many issues. I, I'm not suggesting that they're motivated by that, but that's where they end up a lot of the time. You yourself have a partisan political background and your work experience working for a Democratic United States senator. Uh, do you, is this something you think about with Consumer Reports? Do you think Consumer Reports is now being seen more as a democratic organization because it's, you know, pushing for some of these consumer issues? Or is this something that you guys talk about, think about? Well, we, we talk about our independence quite a lot. And I see that as our superpower. Uh, people trust us. Um, there is a lack of trust in the marketplace and a lack of trust in our political institutions right now. So our, our discipline and I think our success comes from cleaving to that. We have as many red and blue in our membership. We have 6 million members and millions of people coming to our site every day. Uh, we experienced it during COVID. Uh, we had a tremendous amount of traffic. People were coming to us because they trusted us. Uh, does that mean we're neutral? We are not neutral. Our bias has always been, how is this impacting consumers of every shape, color, and political background? How safe is this product? How fair is that contract? What does the fine print have to say and what kind of uh, power are you gonna have? Um, and, and I think that is uh, incredibly important. Um, so I, uh, I, I would say um, our independence for 86 years is something we're gonna continue to cleave to and we're proud of it. Well, we'll have to leave it there. That was Marta Tolado. And again, her new book is titled Buyer Aware, Harnessing Our Consumer Power for a Safe, Fair, and Transparent Workplace. I highly recommend the book. It's very readable. And I think as we have previewed here today, it's just chock full of extremely useful advice. So Marta, uh, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. And thanks for writing the book. Thank you, Grant. It's always a pleasure to be on the show. You've been listening to the Campbell Conversations on WRVO Public Media, conversations in the public interest.
The Campbell Conversations, Conversations in the Public Interest, is hosted and produced by Grant Reher, engineered by Tom Fazio. Assistant producer is Jacqueline Witwicky, and the program is edited by Mark Lefonier. The Campbell Conversations is a joint production of the Campbell Public Affairs Institute at Syracuse University and WBARBO Public Media. To learn more about the program and hear previous interviews, visit wbarbo.org slash Campbell Conversations. 